Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Garrett Cash for another installment of Holy Roll, focused on Thomas A. Dorsey, the father of gospel music. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll, or should I say, holy roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and I'm joined by Garrett Cash for a new series discussing the history of gospel music. This may be the second episode that drops, but it's the first one we're taping, so we're starting here. We're primarily going to discuss the book, The Rise of Gospel Blues, The Music of Thomas Andrew Dorsey in the Urban Church by Michael W. Harris, but we'll also be referencing The Gospel Sound by Anthony Howlbutt and People Get Ready, A New History of Black Gospel Music by Robert Darden. Garrett, welcome. Thank you. And so we are focusing on Thomas A. Dorsey, who's commonly called the father of gospel music, or the father of gospel blues. As Anthony Howlett said, Dorsey combined the good news of gospel with the bad news of blues. Why is this guy so important to American musical history? I would actually compare him to contemporaries like Louis Armstrong to jazz or jazz as it was known at the time, Jimmy Rogers to country music, Maybell and the Carter family to uh, country music as well. Uh, this is a figure who is important due to his innovation and bringing about of an entire new uh, art form by drawing on what had come before in some ways, but it was a revitalization of a musical form happening at the beginning of the 20th century. And Thomas Dorsey is really the man that's kind of uh, bringing all of these uh, influences that have sort of been there for a while, for a few decades, but he's the one that's really uh, bringing it to the new era of the great migration and the uh, urbanization of culture and basically bringing a new voice to African-Americans living in an urban setting. Yeah, and by the great, great migration, we're referring to the movement of millions of African-Americans from the, the American South to the American North, especially the city of Chicago, which is where Dorsey settled after leaving Atlanta in the late teens, um, the 19-teens. So yeah, Dorsey is epic, and it's taken me a while to wrap my head around exactly what the big deal was like i knew so little about about gospel that it was hard to comprehend that this music which seemed like such a bedrock of american music started at a specific point and that that point was as late as 1932 really blew my mind and what really happened was that dorsey 
led a movement or kind of I wouldn't say he led a movement. He certainly didn't plan a movement, but he became the became the leader and the figurehead of a movement that basically reinserted the passionate spirituals of African Americans, the tradition, the brush arbor tradition, the, the secret meetings that the slaves held out in the in the country away from master's house. He brought that back into the black church because it had essentially been exiled from the black church after um, the Civil War and freedom because the leaders of the black church desired very much to be civilized or appear civilized or meet what were the standards of white civilization and were singing jubilees that were based on the spirituals, the spirituals being very ancient songs that were basically improvised and, and remembered um, by African-Americans in, during slavery into a form that was like called Jubilee, where they, they took the lessons of classical music that they had studied. These are talented, educated musicians and formed these formal choral organizations that would do musical presentations and sing classical music, Western concert music in, in their churches and really tamped down the call and response and discouraged people improvising and shouting along and, and, you know, carrying the preacher along. And when the, when the great migration happened, these Southerners wanted that powerful spirituality in their church. And when you think about what happened in the decades after the 1930s, when Dorsey leads this movement that really amazingly quickly takes over the churches. They get some resistance, but it collapses within two or three years of his beginnings with the church, although he's thrown out of the best churches in the country, as he says. But this creates an opportunity for people like Mahalia Jackson, Sam Cooke, so many others to become leaders of African-American culture. This is the music of the civil rights movement. So it's just kind of blowing my mind how big a deal it was. But let's get into Dorsey's biography. Do you have anything to add to that big picture rant I just dropped? Yeah, well, just to kind of give my first impressions and journey to Dorsey, as you sort of just did there, um, I, I kind of have an interesting way that I discovered him. I'm actually from around the area that Dorsey is from. Uh, I'm, you know, originally was born in uh, Kennesaw, Georgia. I'm from the Atlanta, greater Atlanta area. Um, and when I was growing up, one of the things that we did was, you know, I mean, we, you know, frequently would travel around the different kind of suburbs or surrounding areas outside of Atlanta, mostly on the west side where we kind of lived over in Marietta, Smyrna, et cetera. And one of the uh, little kind of cities or towns, I guess you could say, in this area is Villa Rica, which is, of course, where Thomas Dorsey was born. And I did not know anything about this. I was, We were driving in our car one time through one of the uh, you know, main streets in uh, Villa Rica, and I saw one of those historical markers that you see a lot of times in Georgia. Most of them are in reference to some kind of Civil War battle or something. Um, but we saw one of these historical markers and it had a name on it instead of like a battle name. And the name, of course, said Thomas A. Dorsey on it. And I, at that point, was kind of getting into American Roots music and discovering uh, this kind of pre-rock and roll era of music for myself. And one of the artists that I had been enjoying through my big band music kick was Tommy Dorsey, who is the famous uh, big band uh, leader that Frank Sinatra sang with in his early years. And so when I saw the name Thomas Dorsey, I was thinking to myself, is Tommy Dorsey from, uh, you know, Georgia? Like, wh wh what is this? <laughs> Thomas Dorsey? Tommy Dorsey? You know, like, like I I'm thinking it's got to be the big band guy, right? So... I, uh, I immediately asked my parents to swerve over so I could try to see what the plaque said. And uh, when I walked up to it, I found something far more interesting than Tommy Dorsey being from Georgia and read a, basically a great synopsis on this historical marker about who Thomas A. Dorsey was and that, you know, he is the man generally credited with popularizing or possibly inventing gospel music, that he was the man who wrote Peace in the Valley, Take My Hand, Precious Lord. Uh, that his music has been recorded by hundreds of people from Elvis to Mahalia Jackson. 
And uh, I was completely floored because, I mean, I did have, even though I wasn't very familiar with gospel music at the time, I had had exposure to it through Elvis Presley being a big Elvis fan. And so I knew Peace in the Valley. I knew Take My Hand, Precious Lord. So, you know, I, that was just astonishing to me that the man who wrote Peace in the Valley, maybe the only gospel, true gospel song I could even name up to that point, was from Villarica, Georgia. And uh, I, I call that kind of my gospel awakening moment, because like you said, I was just shocked that gospel even had a beginning or a figure that brought it forward in some sense. And to think that, you know, he was from kind of where I was from. And, you know, it, it was just very surreal for me to think that something that seemed as kind of old and far back in the past and uh, something that just kind of always been there eternally as gospel music actually got its start from a guy that, you know, was born just down the road in the 19 you know 10s. So that, that was, you know, very interesting for me and, and kind of my moment of starting an interest in Thomas Dorsey, which really did not you know, accumulate until now, where I've obviously done so much more research on him. And let's drop a, another swerve here, because we're going to play one of the, the song that first made him famous. And he's not initially famous as a gospel guy at all. He's a blues player. And he's the co-founder of a mini genre called hokum that was super popular late in the 20s. And this is Tampa Red and Georgia Tom, Georgia Tom being Thomas A. Dorsey, Dorsey from Villarica, Georgia. And this is tight like that. And I hope you're not offended by uh, sexy lyrics. There was a little black rooster, met a little brown hen, made a date at the barn about half past ten. You know it's tight like that. Beat it up on boys, tight like that. Beat it up on boys, yeah, me talk to you. I made it tight like that. I went to see my gal over across the hall. Find another mule kicking in my store. You know it's tight like that. Beat it up on boys, tight like that. Beat it up on boys, yeah, me talk to you. I made it tight like that. And that was tight like that, which just got my dog all worked up. That was Georgia Tom and Tampa Red. So it was one thing to discover Thomas A. Dorsey. It was a whole nother thing to discover Georgia Tom is the same dude as Thomas A. Dorsey. Yeah, that's a shock. Yeah. And and I mean, you know, this kind of and and tight like that was one of the first recorded examples of a double entendre blues song, which becomes a whole genre, you know, big 10-inch record, et cetera, et cetera, that we hear all through the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So Dude had major cultural impact in a lot of channels. And one of the things that's interesting is he never disavowed blues music or, or criticized blues musicians for doing what they did. He, of course, abandoned it to sing and you know worked at the Pilgrim Baptist Church in Chicago for many, many years and, and was the head of uh, the National Gospel Convention, the National Baptist Convention. No, I'm getting the name wrong. I've got it down in my notes. Um, but we'll get to the convention that he was the head of. But he was the head of a national gospel organization, but he never disavowed his blues roots. But let's, let's get back to the biography. So he's born— and raised early on in Villarica, Georgia. His father's a preacher, also a sharecropper. His mother's a church organist. Clearly, musical talent runs in the family. He was raised on hymns and spirituals. And we talked about spirituals a little bit, but the other big ingredient in the in the mix is hymns. These are hymns written by Englishmen, people like Sir Isaac Watt, in the 17th, 18th century that were brought over and taught to the slaves um, as part of the reculturation process. And I, I don't have words for how brutal American slavery was, how systematic it was. They took people from different tribes in Africa, brutalized them, dragged them across the ocean on a ship, you know, that a huge percentage of these people died. Then they're, they're dropped in this foreign environment and forced to do literal slave labor in groups with no connection, you know, you'd have somebody from Nigeria, you'd have somebody else from the Congo, somebody else from Senegal, members of all these wildly disparate tribes who couldn't communicate to each other. And um, as the the more quote unquote progressive slave owners would would try to convert them to Christianity and offer these religious services that the slaves seized upon. And so songs like Amazing Grace 
and others become part of the African-American cultural heritage from the get-go. Um, anyway, then sharecropping is also, you know, just a terrible way to make a living. The, the scales were completely tilted against the small farmers. The big economic forces were tilted against small farmers, just like they've been our entire lifetimes. So his father threw in the towel on that, moved to Atlanta, became a laborer, which is where Dorsey's exposed to vaudeville, and blues music, he starts playing piano in theaters and parties, um, develops this soft piano style because he plays in small brothels where people dance quietly uh, to, to the music. Um, any, anything commentary you want to add to his Atlanta sojourn and, and the disruption in his life from being the son of a preacher in a small town to suddenly the son of just a day laborer in the big city? Yeah, you kind of touched on it right there in the last uh, thought that what touched me so much reading Dorsey's story and Michael Harris's book was kind of this uh, displacement that Dorsey feels, um, not just uh, in the move to Atlanta, but even in his early years in Villarica, he looks up to these different figures. He has the father who is kind of like a rock star in Villarica, like, you know, in, in general, uh, you know, we've seen in the last hundred years or so how African-American pastors tend to kind of have this very uh, charismatic kind of rock starish kind of personality to them where people, you know, they really look up to them and they're, you, you know, they're, they're, they're very personable. You know, they definitely pull a lot of people together and, uh, you know, people follow these guys and they mean a lot to them. And uh, this is very early on in that culture, of course, but uh, Dorsey's father definitely was someone that uh, people really appreciated. And he didn't even necessarily preach all that much. I mean, he he had to do what he had to do to feed his family. And you see that he didn't, um, there, there, there were times in his life where he didn't preach a whole lot, but people would still be coming up to him and saying, you know, hey, Pastor Dorsey, you're going to be preaching anytime soon? You know, people loved him. So they wanted him to come back and to keep doing it even when times were hard and he wasn't able to. So uh, Thomas really noticed these things and wanted to, uh, you know, have a basically some kind of a standing in the community like his father. And so he wanted to try to kind of attain this status where people cared for him in the way that people cared for his father, which unfortunately was very difficult for Thomas because, you know, you know, he frequently said, you know, he kind of he just wasn't quite as charismatic or he he uh, actually describes himself as ugly. <laughs> so he said that he wasn't able to really get in, like, you know, be popular and whatnot. Um, so music was kind of a way for him to try to add some kind of a social uh, purpose and meaning for himself. So learning to play uh, the piano, or the organ like his mother did, um, trying to kind of uh, have that influence both from the mother and the father was something that was important to him in terms of just, you know, being popular. Like this is something that matters to you. Of course, when you're young is people accepting you and uh, accepting you for who you are and trying to, um, you know, get in with people. And it was a, a big problem for Dorsey early on. And to then move from Villa Rica, where he actually has some kind of social standing and some kind of importance to Atlanta where nobody knows him. Nobody knows his family. Nobody cares. Uh, of course, his father becomes, you know, this kind of laborer in the big city. Um, his mother basically stops playing music the way that she used to. And that's something that's kind of disheartening for Dorsey uh, as a young man, because, you know, this was kind of the uh, badge of honor that his mother had in their previous uh, social world was that she was this great player and now she doesn't even play anymore. So it's just a very sad kind of situation where you see Dorsey as this kind of like, you know, victim of um, change in his family's, uh, you know, fortunes that he kind of has no control over. But you see him working to, you know, try to persevere and make it to the next level that he feels like he can try to make it to through music. Yeah. And it's happening in the context of Jim Crow Atlanta, which <clears throat> obviously was somewhat of an improvement over slavery, but it was a real step back from the days of Reconstruction, the early days of Reconstruction up till about 1877 or so. This brutal uh, segregated system has been violently imposed on African Americans. And so people are really ready to get out of the South because it's slightly better in the North. There's the Chicago Defender, which was the 
national paper of African-Americans basically was based out of Chicago and was encouraging people to come up. And so Thomas Dorsey is one of these people that goes up there. He, he has a couple of false starts where he has to go back to Atlanta because of a nervous collapse type deal, which is a pattern that's going to recur throughout his life. And then um, he goes up there and make it. But let's go ahead and hear our second song. And this is um, Sister Rosa Thorpe. Tharp, sorry, doing Rock Me, a song by Thomas Dorsey. This is something she recorded in 1941 with Lucky Millinder. Now, won't you hear me swinging? Hear the words that I'm singing. Mudge my soul with water from on high. While the world of love is around me. Evil thoughts do bite. Oh, if you leave me, I will die. You just hide me in novelism. Tell a song of life is over. And that was Sister Rosa the Tharp giving everybody in the world a sneak preview of rock and roll in 1941 with Thomas A. Dorsey's song, Rock Me. And if you hear Rosa the Tharp, it's so obvious where rock and roll came from. I mean, it comes directly out of this gospel tradition. And she was a, a member of the Holiness Church, the Pentecostal Church, which um, were early adopters of, of Dorsey's style of gospel blues and had a very extremely passionate style of service that – to me, bleeds directly in, into rock and roll in the and 50s. The fun thing about Rock Me is that it's actually a retitling of a song that Dorsey had written called Hide, Hide Me in Thy Bosom. And this song was recorded by a kind of an unknown artist now named Elder Charles Beck. And Beck was actually a, a contemporary of Dorsey's and was a great kind of barrelhouse piano player in gospel music and also a trumpet player. So his records are really great if you're looking for that kind of gospel blues sound early on. And that was the first recording of that song was Charles Beck's version, which then, you know, goes down the line a couple of decades later, I think, because his was done in the late 20s, I believe, or early 30s to Sister Rosetta, then also taking that very same song and building upon what Charles Beck had done with it. So, I mean, this whole rock and roll and the barrel house piano and whatnot goes all the way back to really the beginning of the recording of this music. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, it's just been mind blowing to me to, to make all these connections. But the weird thing is the blues, Dorsey being a blues guy first and then bringing that blues back into gospel, although gospel and blues probably had a common ancestor in the spirituals. So, and Dorsey never really saw them as different things. He saw blues music as a person singing about their feelings um, in a nighttime context where dancing and drinking is going on. And, and gospel is just how you do it in the morning on a Sunday and speaking about God rather than your personal woes and troubles. But Dorsey gets yeah, up. Dorsey to said blues is a part of me, the way I play piano, the way I write. And he said, I'm not ashamed of my blues. It's all the same talent. A beat is a beat, whatever it is. So, I mean, that's definitely the mentality that's going on here is that, you know, this beat, this style of music, it, it doesn't really matter what the music is behind it. It's what the message is in the lyrics. And this is something that comes up over and over when you talk to gospel artists is that what they're trying to say is that we don't do gospel music as if it's some kind of different music from everything else. It's the same music that you're enjoying all the time with a different positive message. Yeah. And that's very important. And and it's interesting to me, these, this conflict or perceived conflict between gospel and blues or pop, which was, you know, a massive thing in the story of Sam Cooke uh, and so many other performers not so much in Aretha Franklin and not so much in Thomas Dorsey, but, you know, Mahalia Jackson famously refused to do any kind of blues or pop and refused all kinds of money offers. Clara Ward also refused to do blues numbers and make money. And Dorsey, once he became a gospel performer full time, he left the blues behind. But let's get back to his story. So he gets to Chicago and he discovers that everybody in Chicago is playing music that 
a bunch of kids from New Orleans have brought up that Louis Armstrong has hit town and everybody's playing this up-tempo horn music and Thomas Dorsey's brand of slow piano blues that he's playing in Atlanta is very, very uncool. So he's really got to struggle and recalibrate and find places to work and, and starts over at the bottom after having kind of carved out a niche in the Atlanta scene. And it's it's sad, too, because it's not just the fact that these guys are playing up-tempo songs or as Dorsey was playing in a softer style, but he has to completely recalibrate the way he thinks about playing because what Dorsey said was that when he was playing these kind of soft piano uh, backgrounds for couples to dance to in Atlanta, he was kind of playing the same thing over and over again, just kind of adding tiny little variations, you know, doing things just a little bit different. But in general, they kind of want the same thing over and over again. And in Chicago with the jazz musicians, they're doing much more complicated improvisations. Of course, everything is at a much faster tempo, but uh, they're they're not just playing the same song kind of over and over and over, just as like almost a looped background tape, what we would think of now. Uh, it, it was something that was, you know, you had to kind of keep up and you had to, you know, go with the changes and whatnot. Whereas uh, Dorsey's entire uh, mentality of how he was playing the music did not match with this. So it was, it, he thought that being a big fish in Atlanta meant that he would find an even, you know, bigger pond to play in in Chicago when it turned out that uh, he wasn't even ready to be in that pond at all. <laughs> he wasn't worthy. And so, you know, he's struggling to try to find his place. Yeah, and he has an experience of seeing a guy named William Nix at the National Baptist Convention in 1921 doing a song called I Do, Don't You. And that has a big impact on him. And that's when he starts, I think, thinking about doing spiritual music as a possibility. And he also starts writing songs and copywriting songs. He's very early to figure out how publishing works. He writes a song called If You Don't Believe I'm Leaving, You Can Count the Days I'm Gone, which is a well-known blues trope, but that's what people did. They took well-known blues tropes, they wrote them into a song, put them on some sheet music, copyrighted them, and got out there. Um, he also wrote one of his first gospel songs called If I Don't Get There, which was inspired by Charles Tindley, who was an early gospel writer, kind of the precursor of Thomas A. Dorsey, active about 20 years earlier. And to, then, backtrack, to backtrack a little bit back to If You Don't Believe I'm Leaving, um, when you say that you know people would take these songs and then put them on sheet music, that actually wasn't really the case when Thomas started doing this because um, he was kind of seen as a little weird for putting that music to sheet music because this is very early. I mean, obviously, this is early 1920s. Blues music is just kind of coming into being. Um, people thought it was odd to take stuff that everybody knew that you were stealing from something else and just doing a patchwork. You know, you take, like, I mean, it'd be like if, I wrote a new song based off of 20 Beatles songs and took the, you know, one line from all of them and then made a new song out of all of them. People would know that I had made a patchwork. How could I possibly copyright that? You know what I'm saying? So for a lot of people, this was a kind of a bizarre move for Dorsey to make to say, why are you trying to make sheet music out of something that are just what of course became later called like floating verses. These are things that we just all kind of, it's a collective community little pool of lines that we all use and just put in others, put in different things as we please. Uh, but Dorsey was already kind of uh, one step ahead of the game thinking of how he could try to capitalize off of what he was doing, try to find new angles to, uh, make a living for himself. And this is one of the several things that Dorsey is a, you know, can be called an innovator of is making sheet music of what was at the time a completely vernacular oral kind of music. Well, you got to point out that, that W.C. Handy, the the quote unquote father of the blues, had had already had some success, some big success with the St. Louis blues, and the Memphis right. blues on sheet music about seven, eight years earlier. So it wasn't totally unprecedented. But W.C. Handy was already a band leader, already a published songwriter and somebody who had a big platform. So when he did it, it got a lot of attention. It was noticed. Dorsey's doing this at a point when it's just kind of out of time, out of sync with what's going on. But then a big meteorite, a comet lands in the form of Mamie Smith's Crazy Blues, which is one of the first, it's not the first recording of a blues song, but it's the first recording of a blues song by a black performer. And it's a massive seller and immediately changes everything. Suddenly there's a big market for this old timey blues. There's big interest in the cities. Um, people like Mamie Smith are soon 
she soon followed up by people like Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey, who actually hires Dorsey ends up getting hired by Ma Rainey and becoming her band leader and and a music arranger. He gets this gig because he he's gets some work at Paramount Records. I'm kind of compressing the timeline because we've already used half our time and got a lot to cover. Um, but he gets 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 a job with Paramount Records, then gets a job with Ma Rainey, who's absolutely one of the top blues stars of the day, works with her from 1924 to 1928. And it seems like he's made it at this point. Like he's a made man. He's he's the number one guy of one of the top five blues, top three blues singers in the country at a time when she's selling tens or hundreds of thousands of copies of every record she's doing. She's playing vaudeville theaters. They're touring the country. He's married. He's happy. Things are going well. And suddenly he falls in this massive deep depression and cannot perform anymore at all. And he's replaced by Ma Rainey, can't provide for his family. After, what, 18 months or something, he has this pretty bizarre experience where um, a preacher heals him and pulls a snake out of his mouth. And let's take a break to hear from our sponsor. When we come back, we'll hear how Dorsey did once the snake had been removed. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And so Dorsey has this religious experience wherein he's healed of his illness. And soon after, he writes a song called If You See My Savior, Tell Him That You Saw Me. And this is the first time he'd written some attempts at religious songs, but this is the first time that he writes what they call a true gospel blues, where he's taken the, the techniques he's used in his blues songwriting and work with Ma Rainey and puts it to a spiritual purpose and 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 um publishes it again himself but he's a pretty poor businessman he's got his uncle selling that these sheets of songs in his store he's going to churches trying to sell this stuff nobody really wants it things are looking extremely bleak when uh he meets a guy named hudson Whit whitaker aka tampa red who's got some lyrics for a song called it's tight like that and he needs some music and Dorsey answers the call. Yeah, and this is such an interesting moment for me in, in the sense that this is not the way I expected this timeline to go. Because Exactly. The way, the, way, the way that I think of it's tight like that in the timeline of Thomas Dorsey is that this is something that happened before any kind of religious conversion happened to him. And you know, after it's tight like that becomes this massive, you know, hit seller, you know, and a big influence, then, okay, now he's going to have a religious conversion after that. But this is after his religious conversion. And having re-listened to tight like that today, I mean, I personally, as someone who, you know, ha has a Christian faith, I, I would be kind of weirded out <laughs> if I had just had this kind of experience 
of, you know, having a snake removed or, or deciding I was going to write gospel songs. If my buddy came up to with me to me with a song that was as explicit now, at least as tight like that would have been then it would have been a, a tough sell <laughs> for, for me to work on that if I had made some kind of a commitment. And so this is uh, definitely a, a showing what it was like for Dorsey to try to navigate the duality that was in him and that Michael Harris talks about, which is this kind of, you know, secular sacred divide that you're, you're trying to make it cohere. And for a lot of people, uh, th- th- this is kind of a, a difficult question, which is, you know, how much, you know, uh, secular do I allow in my sacred if I am going to be someone that pursues a, uh, you know, a relationship and a faith in Jesus Christ? How am I going to navigate the world and allow the world to influence me, the things I say, my behavior? You know, these are things that as a, a believer, you have to, you know, kind of kind of have a, you know, it's not something that is explicitly said in the Bible. It is said to, you know, try to be in the world, but not of the world. But that's kind of left up to interpretation on how you do that. I mean, you know, you can be in the world, but not of the world. Well, most everybody has sex some way. You know, we, you know, we, we get married, we have children. Uh, so is it therefore okay to sing about? It? You know, there's these things where you can, uh, you know, try to figure out what's acceptable or what's not. And uh, it's tight like that. Certainly seems like something that would raise a lot of eyebrows for people in the church to think that someone that was also writing songs like if you see my savior to be writing a song that was a huge you know popular hit for the blues music like that would would have been uh, you know something that would have made a lot of people kind of question where Dorsey's allegiances lay at the time yeah i mean it's pretty much as if he had just co-founded the two life crew um and, and <laughs> right yes 1927 <laughs> and you know i mean but at the same time african american culture's got a different attitude towards sexuality than anglo american culture which you know Northern European culture is one of the most notoriously sexually uptight cultures in the world. Southern Europeans have a very different attitude. Um, the French obviously have a very different attitude. So there's there's kind of a cultural disconnect when a couple of white boys like ourselves start talking about this. And I think it's seen a little bit differently in the black community. Obviously, if you're listening and you're in the black community and you disagree, please tell us. Um, but yeah, but Dorsey, it, it was clear and it was clear at the time that He's not exactly doing the Lord's work as Georgia Tom. Nonetheless, he's got a wife to feed. They want to have a family. So, you know, the, the church music isn't working out for him at this point, and, and he just goes with it. And it and it works for two, three, four, five years, rides out the rest of the record boom of the late 20s. And meanwhile, he's continuing to write his religious songs and and kind of goes through a second wave of songs that that Harris is kind of hard on that 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 these are not as songs that are as inspired as his first batch of religious songs. And they're not definitely nothing like what's going to come later. And. That's for a reason. Um, But before we get to the tragedy that kind of changes his songwriting style. He starts to figure out that what he needs is a singing partner that can sell his blues, gospel blues in the churches the way a Tampa Red helps him sell his blues songs or the way Ma Rainey had sold. He needs a front man. He's a he's a second guy. He's a backline guy. He's a, a musical leader, piano player, but he's not a lead singer or a front person. So he tries a variety of people. Initially, he tries a pretty anodyne pop style singer. Really doesn't work. Um, tries another couple. Then he finds that if he partners with a preacher and he meets a guy named Theodore Fry, who is a Stretton preacher, he's famous for strutting up and down the aisles while he's preaching. And the two of them partner and, um, neither of them, you know, it's not like Fry has a congregation or anything. They're on the periphery of the religious scene, but they meet a guy named Reverend James Smith at a Ebenezer Baptist church, which is, not one of the top churches in Chicago, but it's a respectable church, the mid-sized congregation. Smith's coming from the South, and he wants to get a little bit of the flavor into his services. So he sees Fry and Dorsey performing and asks them to form a gospel chorus there at Ebenezer Baptist. And things start happening pretty fast from this point. Can you run through uh, some of the chain of events? Yeah, so... uh... Basically, you have a big uh, 
kind of explosion here at the beginning of the 30s where um, 1930, you have the National Baptist Convention. And this is kind of the moment that Dorsey says is really the moment where his music starts to go from something that just gets him kicked out of churches to churches are starting to really accept what's happening. Um, because Willie Mae Ford Smith sings the song, If You See My Savior, at the convention, and it just is a huge hit with the crowds. I mean, people are going crazy hearing this music, and he sells, you know, over 4,000 copies of the sheet music, which, you know, I mean, it may sound like, okay, that's that's a big number, you know, but maybe it's a little small compared to, like, what he needed. Well, I mean, what he had been selling prior to that wasn't even enough to make a living on, which is why he was having to do all the tight like that Georgia Tom stuff. So this is a huge moment for Dorsey, seeing how people are responding to his music and seeing that uh, it can actually work as a uh, something to financially support him. So this you know leads into other things going on at the time, like uh, the Pilgrim Baptist Church, which is a church in Chicago. And um, they hired Dorsey as their music director. And this is kind of it leads into this whole era for Dorsey of kind of being someone who is uh, re- really conducting and arranging choirs and uh, music direction for churches. He's uh, leading uh, choruses. And, and this is where he's kind of inventing what Michael Harris calls um like a choral uh, gospel blues, I believe. And uh, th- this is such a huge change from what had come before, because, I mean, we kind of referenced it. I'm sure, you know, this is going to be something that we re- repeatedly talk about here in the early days. But prior to Dorsey doing what he was doing here, you really had a kind of, kind of a um, high society version of worship going on in the uh, worship times, because this was not a, you know, real improvised or spirit-led, as they would say, uh, worship. It was very much a kind of like a cultural, uh, cultural, high-minded cultural worship where, you know, okay, we want to make sure that we look really dignified and intellectual and that, you know, we look upper crust and whatnot. So we're going to basically sing songs or uh, perform songs in the churches that are going to be something that just shows how classy we are. So we're going to play Mozart. We're going to play Handel. We're going to play Isaac Watts. So they're going back into the kind of, you know, old line uh, English hymns and classical music tradition to try to basically assimilate themselves into the uh, greater urban kind of white culture that's going on in the big city to show that they're you know worthy of being taken seriously. Well, this may be something that the the church founders or fathers are interested in, but the people who are attending, who are by and large impoverished and just trying to live day to day, this music just doesn't really connect with them. So they're not really uh, in fully enjoying this music that, I mean, for most of them, they didn't even grow up on music like this because they're from the South and they moved here. So they're coming from a background where they're, hearing and singing these songs that are moving people to make them, uh, you know, shout and uh, speak in tongues and run up and down the aisles, all the kind of stuff you would expect, you know, in these Pentecostal churches to these very sedate kind of more uh, white inspired uh, services going on in the big cities. And they don't really enjoy it or understand it, but they're here and they're here to work and they want to worship. And so they're going to do what they have, what they can to try to just accept this. But once Dorsey comes along and he shows them, hey, we can still do this. We can still play this kind of music. It just goes gangbusters after that. And and that's how you see um, basically his his whole songwriting career just totally take off in the early 30s. He's able to travel around and sell sheet music to churches all across America. So his uh, ministry and his writing uh, music career is not really so much on record the way that the Georgia Tom stuff was before, but now he's trying to take this music directly to the churches. And this is where gospel music is going to really take hold early on is inside of the uh, church body. Let's take a quick break and hear Elvis Presley doing Thomas A. Dorsey's Peace in the Valley on the Ed Sullivan Show in the late 1950s. But I must go along till the Lord. 
And a lamb is a light And a night, night is as black as a sea Oh, yes, And that was Elvis Presley doing Peace in the Valley on the Ed Sullivan Show, I think in 1958. I can only wish that I had had a camera, that somebody had a camera in Thomas A. Dorsey's house when he watched that on TV. And I hope he got to see that. Um, A a big moment. But let's talk about a tragic event that happens really early on once Dorsey's career starts kicking off. And I talked about Theodore Fry, who is his preaching singing partner, and Fry had actually been the one to drag him to the convention um, where Smith was singing his songs. Dorsey wasn't hip to the whole church scene, basically, and needed people to kind of guide him through that. But once he got an opportunity, he seized it with both hands. And he was traveling to St. Louis uh, shortly after that first convention, I think within a year of that. And his wife, Nettie, was expecting. She was in good health. She was expecting to have the baby. And he was expecting to return home to a healthy wife and, and his first child. And he gets a telegram saying, you know, come home immediately. Nettie has passed. He rushes home. Nettie's died in childbirth. Thomas Jr. is still alive and well. He goes to bed, gets up the next morning, and Thomas Jr. has died too. Another absolutely devastating spiritual crisis and emotional crisis. Um, you know, one of the worst things that can happen to somebody. And he's fortunate, and he's got friends and family around him. And one of them takes him to a church to play the piano just to take his mind off of it. And he starts playing some chords and melodies from a hymn called Must Jesus Bear the Cross Alone? This is something that was, the words were written by Thomas Shepard in the late 1600s. George Nelson Allen added new music to it in 1852. Originally, hymns were sung to whatever popular melodies were around. It was only in the 19th century, really, that they sort of started systematically writing original music for hymns. So George Nelson Allen went back uh, to one of the big hymn books and wrote some tune, a tune to go with the Thomas Shepard song. Dorsey takes that melody and reshapes it into Precious Lord, Take My Hand, which is the first time he's really ripped his heart out and shown it to everybody in gospel music the way he had done with his blues. Like Harris in the book talks about how Dorsey sort of initially assumed he would need to deal with this emotional crisis through blues music. He didn't it didn't occur to him that he could express this much pain through his gospel music. And this is where it really comes together. This is where Thomas A. Dorsey achieves true greatness. And this, this is one of, um, you know, his, his most best known songs. And, and from there he's able to take comfort in his work and be very busy and, eventually does piece his life back together. Eventually, like I think 10 years, five, seven, eight years later, he marries again, has children. Uh, In the interim, he had kind of fostered his sister's child just so he could have a little bit of family at home. But he also meets a woman named um, Sally Martin who joins him up and who raises his game on the business front. Can you run through how Sally kind of saved the day financially for Thomas? Yeah, similar to Fry, Sally Martin was somebody who basically was someone who had all the elements going on that Thomas did not have to be able to create a team with him, to be able to get gospel music to as many churches as possible. And uh, what she did was really uh, give Thomas a uh, a business uh, sensibility that he had never had before because we had seen so often how Dorsey was very um, business challenged. You know, he was very good at uh, writing songs, obviously, at, at music, but like many people who are creative and who are in the music business, uh, they, they don't really know exactly how to conduct the business side of it as well as they do the music side. And uh, what Sally does is sort of gives Dorsey the opportunity to uh, now have a singer slash salesperson um, because she was a, she is a singer. Um, uh, Anthony Heilbutt, uh kind of rips on her singing a little bit in the gospel sound book, but uh, from, from she's what got I, a unique style for sure, yeah, but she, it's a, it's a, a raw, a, powerful yeah. voice. Mm-hmm. She's got a very unique style. I mean, she, she's not as, 
immediately impressive as a Mahalia Jackson or a Clara Ward or a Zeta Tharp. But, uh, she, you know, she's someone like Willie Mae Ford Smith, I would say, has a very, um, you know, personal style. Someone that when you hear her, you know it's her and that she – uh, she, she brings a lot of emotion to the table, a lot of, you know, what we would say soul now, of course, it's not something that, you know, would be said quite as much then, but, um, what she does is give, uh, you know, partners with Dorsey to form uh Dorsey house of music. And they begin to just, uh, spread the word, uh, both literally and figuratively, uh, of the gospel by, um, going to different churches and performing Dorsey's songs and selling the sheet music and kind of all having it housed under this, uh, you know, publishing company. And they are able to really kind of uh, bolster gospels, uh, you, you know, uh, renown and it's, um, infiltration into the African American church culture, uh, just explodes because the churches are now going to be performing this music on the regular every Sunday. So, I mean, this is a weekly, you're hearing this music uh, every single week uh, consistently. And because they're selling the sheet music, this was during the depression records were not sold quite as much in the depression because the, of the uh, shellac and whatnot, everything being expensive. Uh, so people didn't really buy uh, records because they were you know more pricey, but they could buy the sheet music, which was cheaper, and then they'd just play it at home on their piano. Uh, so you would have people not only singing this stuff in churches, you would have them playing it themselves, learning, really getting it into their DNA by learning exactly how to play it for, off of the sheet music. Uh, and, and, and this is sort of like how in the uh, modern culture, when a new uh, church or, or worship standard gets kind of passed around. Uh, everybody kind of learns it. Everybody learns the chords to it. Anybody can kind of whip it out at a uh, get together or worship service and everybody will kind of know how to play it. Uh, this is what's kind of being uh, said is the standard here with uh, Sally helping Dorsey make this music the standard. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a, a big deal. And, and, what was interesting to me, like especially in Harris's book, because he sets up this conflict between the old line churches, and it's easy to sort of condemn these people for, oh, you know, they're trying to be highfalutin or whatever. These people had PTSD in the most massive sense possible. They had been traumatized, enslaved, tortured, were still being murdered all across the country on the regular. So, and and having any legal rights at all is novel to this culture, and so they're trying to fit in, trying to find a path. And it's a totally reasonable thing to do to try to impress other pe the dominant culture with like, look at us, we can do what you do and do it quite well. Um, right. And, but, this is kind of, and this is kind of, kind of goes back to Jubilee, doesn't it? Which is uh, saying to the dominant uh, culture, hey, you know, our culture and what we do, uh, we, we can make it really uh, classy and highfalutin uh, as well, and you know we're we're able to do uh, what you do, and uh, we hope that you will give us some modicum of respect for that, which is the super sad state of affairs going on here early in the 20th century. And like you said, this PTSD aspect, I it's it, it's sad that this is the case, but a lot of times when people are in situations where they're being abused, you know, emotionally or physically, they still want to try to impress the abuser to try to make them see them as being someone that is not worthy of the abuse. But that's not really the response that would be appropriate. You know, you're trying to uh, just make that person happy by doing what they want you to do, but you're always going to end up in this cycle of it never being good enough. And this is what these people were experiencing. Yeah. And so once the vigor of these old time arbor brush services are brought into the official church it's just an enormous wellspring wellspring of strength for the african american community and let's hear one of the examples of how powerful this music can be this is mahalia jackson singing dorsey's song take my hand precious lord at the funeral of martin luther king in 1968 
And that was Mahalia Jackson performing Dorsey's song, Take My Hand, Precious Lord, at the funeral for Martin Luther King in spring of 1968. So that gives you just a taste for the magnitude culturally of this stuff. Mahalia Jackson is a protege of Dorsey's who comes onto the scene in the late 30s. Um, he immediately takes her under wing, tutors her, teaches her. Uh, she's a talent that you know can't be corralled. Uh, she's her own being, but they work together uh, quite a bit. She records um, independent for independent labels throughout the 40s, which is the really sweet stuff. That Mahalia Jackson 1940s gospel is some of the greatest music um, recorded in America in the 20th century easily. In the 50s, she signs with Columbia Records, and this is where I was exposed to Mahalia Jackson. And this is one of the reasons that finding out that gospel was this relatively new thing was so shocking to me, because my parents were older. They were World War II um, era folks. I was uh, the youngest child, and they didn't have many records, but they had Mahalia Jackson records in there, right next to my mom's Time Life set of the great classical composers that she was so proud of. I mean, they're classic, cotton-picking, poor folks who had achieved a modicum of status in the post-war prosperity, and the kind of things that they were showing off is, look how cultured we are, were these Mahalia Jackson records on Columbia. I mean, that's how quickly Mahalia Jackson and gospel music achieved this real respect and status in American culture. <clears throat> and it's easy to see why it's because it's Mahalia Jackson, <laughs> you know, singing yeah. these songs. Any and, human and she, she has, I mean, she sounds like she could just as well be singing opera. I mean, to me, she always sounds like uh, someone that had a powerful enough voice in every way, shape and form that she could literally do whatever she wanted to do. And wh what I love is um, when people would ask, or, or, or would say to her, you know, as a criticism of some sort, well, don't you know that you're such a good singer that uh, you could sing something other than gospel? Uh, she'd say something to the effect of, well, why do you think I sing so good? It's because I'm singing the gospel. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, like Aretha Franklin, who comes out of the gospel tradition, who was fundamentally a gospel singer, she sang opera. Uh, toward towards the the end of her life, stepped stepped in for Luciano Pavarotti and filled in for him at the Grammy Awards. So yeah, I have no doubt Mahalia Jackson could have sung opera or any kind of music if she wanted to, and you know, harnessing this innate cultural power of African American music getting it into the church where it can nurture and sustain the culture through the period of the civil rights movements in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. I mean, I don't even have words for it. Like, you know, normally when I'm wowed by somebody's cultural contribution, it's, you know, Louis Armstrong and Bing Crosby te teaching people how to sing with a microphone. This is on a whole nother level of magnitude. This, you know, like. Yeah, this is not this is not just a technological innovation. It's a cultural phenomenon that is being pioneered and spread by really a very small collection of people and Dorsey being one of the main figures doing it. And to think that, I mean, we talk, and like you said, we talk about innovators all the time. People like Bill Monroe and bluegrass or Scott Joplin, you know, ragtime, you know, there, there's people who you know, had such a massive impact that it's just hard to even wrap your head around it. And Dorsey is absolutely somebody that belongs in that pantheon of people to, uh, but he doesn't come up very often and it's because, you know, as we'll say a lot, you know, gospel music is very much, you know, on, on the fringes when it shouldn't be in terms of its, you know, musical influence and power. And I, I think that Dorsey's accomplishment and legacy is something that is absolutely comparable, if not even greater than a lot of the people that we give the same um, accolades to. I mean, he's definitely someone who came at the right time and place, but he responded to the cultural duality that he was faced with, uh, with the beautiful and incredible synthesis that he uh, pioneered of bringing the gospel music that was happening on the Saturday night, Saturday night with the hymns that were being sung and the spirituals that had been sung uh, on Sunday morning, and then combining them. And this is uh, what we see is the exact same uh, kind of recipe that is being used to create rock and roll later on or soul music. Um, it, it, it's, it's the exact same idea that you're going to take 
what is happening in the uh, secular world, mix it with the the sacred, and you're going to have a whole new breed. And that's pretty much the, the the first time I can think that had ever happened in American culture was uh, in the uh, 20th century was Dorsey doing this. And and that is something that you know we we cannot overstate that the importance of that, the influence of that. Yeah, and also these guys were giving the soundtrack for the preaching of Martin Luther King and C.L. Franklin and this incredibly powerful generation of evangelists who literally changed American history and made the life better for everybody, obviously, especially for black people. But, you know, I would much rather live in the society that we're trying to defend now uh, than in Jim Crow segregation. I, you know, what a horrible nightmare. And so Dorsey's impact, yeah, just absolutely, absolutely uh, immense. And then we got to mention the documentary he did late in his life. He obviously didn't produce or direct it, but he stars in it, same in somebody, which um, brings back, uh, um, <clears throat> I'm always forgetting her name. May, Nettie, oh, Willie May Ford Smith. Yeah, Willie May Ford Smith, thank you, who's featured in it. And when I saw that movie a long time ago, back when it was on PBS, I had no idea who she was. I knew who most of the big gospel singers were, and she wasn't on my list. Then, knowing now what I know, that she's the person who broke Dorsey's music at the National Baptist Convention in the 1930s, makes perfect sense why she's in that movie. And Sally Martin's in the movie, too. And you can tell she has a more complicated relationship with Thomas <laughs> <laughs> that movie. I don't know if you picked up on she, it. She seems to have a more complicated relationship with humanity. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. But but with Dorsey, they'd had they'd been business partners and then gone separate ways, and she you know been very successful on their own. So there's a sort of interesting tension. But definitely see that movie if you can. Dorsey is sparkling in that movie. He's so charismatic. Um, you can only imagine how charismatic his father was if, if Dorsey didn't feel like he was a charismatic guy, because you can really tell he's just a showbiz guy and also a preacher has that authority, has that demeanor. Um, so Garrett, any final thoughts that we need to get out there before we wrap this up? Yeah, I would just say that what Thomas Dorsey was frequently writing about in his songs. And this is something I kind of always want to go back to with the gospel artists that we cover is kind of like, what were they saying? Because this is from my research, from my reading, from, from what I can tell. And again, you know, if there's anybody out there that thinks different, that's a little bit more in the world of gospel music, you can correct me. But from what I can tell, it really seems like the people who are very successful in gospel music and who have a lasting impact and influence, what, they say is the reason why they have this influence and this impact is because they really mean what they're talking about. They're trying to uh, spread a message through song. They're trying to uh, to preach the word and to evangelize in this music. And there's a song that Thomas Dorsey wrote that I think is incredibly important to this, that, you know, you see the, this idea over and over again with other people, but Dorsey really kind of put it to music was a song called, um, yeah, I want to live the life that I sing about in my song. And this is something that Mahalia Jackson recorded uh, and it's something Marion Williams also recorded from the Ward Singers. And it's, it's a song that Dorsey wrote kind of in um, a response to what he saw as a lot of people kind of coming over to gospel music later on during the and kind of just saying like, oh, gospel music, there's a lot of money there. There's a lot of uh, potential for success there. Let's just start singing about Jesus and, you know, keep living the life that we were living, keep being secular. But now we're just going to sing about Jesus instead to make a buck. Well, you know, for in the mind of someone like Dorsey or uh, Marion Williams, uh, Claire Ward, I mean, this, you know, this music really means something beyond just something that, uh, OK, you know, I'm doing this to have some kind of musical success, earthly success. They're, they're doing this music to try to uh, have, have a message, have meaning. And I think that what Dorsey's was kind of in total when you really look at his most loved songs is, is that of perseverance. Because uh, Take My Hand, Precious Lord, or Peace in the Valley, really the two most famous songs of his are about this, uh, you know, finishing the race is what Paul says in, uh, in his epistles in the Bible. Uh, so, you know, it, it, this concept really seems to drive Dorsey of, you know, I want to finish strong. I want to you know, stay in the faith and, and, and stay strong. And, you know, it's not just about, you know, doing good deeds, doing the right thing. It's about, 
you know, finishing the course, not, not veering off, going all different directions and whatnot. It's about persevering so you can get to that moment where there will finally be peace someday. And uh, I think that that's really important to try to think about if you're exploring the music of Thomas Dorsey's to think about how frequently he wrote about, you know, staying true to yourself, staying true to the things that, you know, you're trying to uh, write and say, don't be hypocritical. Don't try to do something that, uh, you know, you're, you're saying one thing and doing another. And if you're going to really try to stick to what you're saying, keep doing it until the end and eventually there will be peace. So I just wanted to say that because that to me seems to be the essence of Thomas Dorsey. And that's what's really kind of inspiring me in my, uh, you, you know, in my walk right now. And and I, I'm glad you pointed that out. And I do want to mention also there's a great compilation called Precious Lord, Recordings of the Great Gospel Songs of Thomas A. Dorsey that features a number of artists. I think they recorded it in 1973. So right at kind of a golden age for gospel when Aretha Franklin was really popularizing stuff. And that's a great way to hear um, Dorsey's catalog um, really well recorded and performed with just absolute passion by some of the best gospel singers of his era. So Garrett, um, for Garrett Cash, I'm Nate Wilcox, and we are hoping to tell as much of the story of gospel as we can. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate kicks off the 15th season of Let It Roll with guest Bill Kopp to discuss his book, Disturbing the Peace, 415 Records and the Rise of New Wave. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.